Episode 8 of The Irrational Realist. College football. We act like it's life or death, but trust us, it is much more than that. From my podcast poll on what topics to cover, college football was at the top of the list. Okay, I had one vote and it was for college football, but that does make it a number one, top of the list, king of the hill, a number one. Apologies to Frank. College football is a religion to those of us who follow it closely, like yours truly. The level of excitement, passion, and outright fanaticism is unmatched in any other sport. Pro football fans and NASCAR fans and soccer fans will argue that their sport has the greatest fans, but until you've attended a high-profile college football game in person, you really have no idea. College football fans are heavily invested in their team, in most cases from birth. Their parents and family have been rabid fans and raised their children to have the same passion for the team. In some cases, the kids grow up to attend the college or university they followed since diapers, but then that passion grows into an obsession. The official title of college football on the big stage is NCAA Division I Football Bowl Subdivision, or FBS. FBS is a lot easier to write on checks. The FBS consists of the largest colleges and universities in the country with a total, as of this year, at 133 schools over 10 conferences. The 10 conferences are in a state of flux right now with schools like Texas, Oklahoma, UCLA and USC, Washington, Oregon and others jumping from one conference to another trying to jockey for a position in the best super conferences. College football purists have not been pleased with these moves as it ultimately will end longtime college football rivalries as new conference scheduling will leave few openings for non-conference games. I, on the other hand, do enjoy the new conference lineups as some old rivalries like USC-Notre Dame may in time go away, but new rivalries will eventually take their place, thus growing viewership, increased budgets, and lining the pockets of networks and university presidents with wads and wads of cash. And isn't that really what college football is all about? Just for grits and shins, let's quickly review the top conferences as they stand today. The SEC, or Southeastern Conference, consists of 14 petulant schools in the southeastern part of the U.S. that have given themselves the title of the best schools in the best conference because they've had recent success in the playoffs. The self-entitled schools now throw tantrums when they don't win and have attitudes that alienate every other school in the U.S. Take out Georgia, and this year they rank at the bottom of the conferences as strength of schedule, which will undoubtedly lead to riots and lootings. I mean protests about bad officiating. The SEC continues to recruit top talent, however, due to the milder weather during football season in southern states, because most kids are wimps and don't want to play in snow. Now let's visit the Big 12. The Big 12 consists of 14 schools because it was apparently too expensive to change the name. Most of the schools reside in the center of the U.S. in what we affectionately call the Great Plains or the Dust Bowl. They recently added Cincinnati and the University of Central Florida, so we had stopped calling it the Dust Bowl. Regardless, the power schools in Big 12 football normally are Oklahoma and Texas, which are now moving to the SEC next year because the rest of the conference sucks and they apparently are overbearing and petulant, which will fit in nicely in the SEC. Now the Big 12 will slide into mediocrity and eventually merge with another conference before all the football TV money dries up completely. Oh no. Next, we'll head west to the Pac-12, formerly the Pacific Coast Conference. 
The Pac-12 consists of 12 schools along the left coast, plus Arizona, Colorado, and Utah thrown in just to give them a sense of reality. Historically, the Pac-12 has been the laughing stock of college football, but this year they have several teams that could actually compete for a championship. Undoubtedly, if that happens, we'll see a stampede of Hollywood elite stepping over the actual fans to jump on the bandwagon and scoop up tickets to the playoffs. If Hollywood is good for something, it's sticking their freshly Botoxed faces in front of the cameras at an elite sporting event that they know nothing about. Correct! The ACC, or Atlantic Coast Conference, consists of 15 schools, although only 14 compete in football because Notre Dame only competes in basketball. They have their own brand in football that has negotiated a very lucrative TV deal worth a thousand billion trillion dollars with ABC over the next millennium. In short, they don't need any chump change from the ACC. The rest of the underprivileged schools are located along the Atlantic coast, along with Louisville thrown in to keep the rich kids away during away games. The ACC is primarily a basketball conference that has been illegally recruiting high school phenoms for decades. The ACC has also shown promise over the past few years in football, with Clemson and Florida State both winning national championships in the past decade. I do not foresee that this year. The last of the Power Five conferences is the tradition-rich Big Ten Conference. The Big Ten consists of 14 schools scattered from Nebraska to New Jersey. However, the bulk of the power comes from the Ohio State, Michigan, and Penn State, as they are historically among the top football schools in the nation year after year. The knock on Big Ten schools has always been their inability to win the big games. The last national championship was won by the Ohio State University Buckeyes in 2014. This knock on the conference is mostly due to the grueling physical brand of football played in the Big Ten in some of the coldest and snowiest conditions that the weak and coddled SEC, ACC, and Pac-12 teams rarely face. This year, three of the top seven in the country and two of the top three are from the Big Ten. Look for great things from the Buckeyes, I I mean the Big Ten, in 2023. So what does a day in the life of a college football fan on game day really look like? Well, the preparation starts 24 hours earlier with the menu planning, because you can't just have any old meal on game day. Many times it's wings, sliders, chili, or ribs depending on when the game starts and how much time I have to prepare everything beforehand, because the last thing you want to do on game day is cook. If it's an early game, the whole family might jump in the car and go to an establishment that is playing the game on the big screen, with sound, of course. If they don't play the sound, stay home. The morning of the game, it's up early to get to the store for any last-minute items. Jersey, socks, shorts, and shoes are worn all day. Any accessories like necklaces or hats are normally only worn during the game itself. Any break in the process may mean bad juju for your team. Have I been known to change jerseys in the middle of the game just to change the luck? Yes. Yes, I have. I'm not superstitious, but any variation in the routine could be disastrous. During the Penn State game last year, the Buckeyes were behind at halftime. I changed jerseys and switched colors of my illuminated Buckeye logo from scarlet to white. The Buckeyes came back in the second half and won the game. Disaster averted, thanks mainly to my halftime corrections. This year, we'll be watching the game with the San Antonio chapter of the Ohio State Alumni Association at the local establishment. Surrounding yourself with good Buckeye mojo is always a good idea to ensure a positive outcome. Oh, yeah! Now let's talk rivalries. 
Let's dive into the depths of great college football with some of the best college rivalries of all time. My rank from number five to number one, let's start with number five, USC versus UCLA. Here are two schools that are only about 12 miles apart in the city that never sleeps. No, not New York. I'm talking about Los Angeles. And it never sleeps because if it did, it would be Rob blind in less time than it takes to say, wait, didn't I park my car here? USC is the University of Spoiled Children. I mean, the University of Southern California Trojans. And UCLA stands for University of California and Los Angeles Bruins. Because neither of those names would fit on a college football jersey. They reduce the names to USC and UCLA. Smart move if you're paying the jersey maker by the letter. With two schools so close to one another, you're bound to have yourself a good old-fashioned football rivalry, which USC leads with 50 wins to UCLA's 33 wins and 7 ties. The game has been called the Crosstown Cup, the Los Angeles City Championship, the Crosstown Showdown, the Battle of LA, or simply the Crosstown Rivalry because it's LA and one name simply won't do. The winner not only gets bragging rights in the possession of the victory bell, which the winning school quickly paints with their school colors, but most importantly, due to the success on the field of both programs, the game more times than not decides the Pac-12 championship in a trip to the Rose Bowl where they would play the winner of the Big Ten if neither of those teams are invited to the national championship playoffs. Both of these teams head to the Big Ten next year, but should continue this storied tradition. Number four, Florida versus Florida State. This physical game isn't quite what it used to be, as both programs have been, let's say, much better in past years. But make no mistake, these two teams hate each other. This rivalry first began in 1958, with Florida winning 12-7. Since then, the Florida Gators have won 37 times to the Florida State Seminoles, 27, with two ties. They only made my list because at the peak of the rivalry from 1990 to 2001, two legendary head coaches were going head-to-head. Steve Spurrier for the Gators, and Bobby Bowden for the Seminoles. Bobby ended the 12-year war with eight wins and a tie to Spurrier's five wins. In every game during those 12 years, both teams were ranked in the top 10 and at least once, if not both, had national title hopes. And coincidentally, both did win two national championships during this time. Those 12 years saw some of the best college football in history and some of the highest advertising dollars. Because isn't that what college football is really all about? This year, Florida State is undefeated and ranked fourth at the time of this writing, and Florida's season is going in the opposite direction. However, look for a good game as these two Florida powerhouses face off on November 25th, and look for Florida State to get one game closer to the Gators in their all-time record. Number three, Alabama versus Auburn. Now, people in Alabama call this the greatest rivalry in college football basically because they are so close-minded. They have no idea there's actually football played outside the state of Alabama. Bama fans may be the worst in the country. I will give them a pass, though, as they've had great championship-quality teams for decades. No doubt to the great string of coaches they've had, including Bear Bryant, Gene Stallings, and possibly the greatest of all time, Nick Satan. Uh, uh, Sorry, Fordian slip. I mean, Dick Saban. Uh, Nick Saban. Wow, sorry again. Nicknamed the Iron Bowl, the Alabama and Auburn game has not been all one-sided as one might believe with the success of Bama football. The Crimson Tide only lead the series 49-37 with one tie. The Iron Bowl goes back to 1893 with Auburn winning that first meeting 32-22. to 
They do have a rather unique tradition where the president of the losing school has to sing the winning team's fight song during the Alabama-Auburn basketball game later in the school year. I'm going to go out on a limb and say Chris Roberts, the new president of Auburn, better start learning the lyrics to Bama's fight song. With Auburn's latest woes on the football field, he's going to be singing a lot. I mean, a lot. Number two, Oklahoma versus Texas. I'm going to be totally honest. Until I moved to Texas, I did not know how big of a game this really was. Yes, they both have had great teams with great coaches like Barry Switzer, Bob Stoops, and Bud Wilkinson for the Oklahoma Sooners, and Mac Brown, Daryl Royal, and currently Steve Sarkeesian for Texas. This game is dubbed the Red River Rivalry for the Red River that divides Oklahoma from Texas at the border. It used to be called the Red River Shootout, but special interest groups didn't like the reference to guns because Texans and Oklahomas have such strict gun laws. The game was first played in 1900 and has been played uninterrupted since 1929. Texas leads 65-51 to with five ties. However, Oklahoma enjoyed a win this year over the previously unbeaten Texas Longhorns. The rivalry is steeped in tradition, with the biggest being where the game is held every year. The Cotton Bowl in Dallas has been a neutral site and has housed the game since 1932. And though discussion was on the table to possibly move the game to a newer, larger venue to make more money, because isn't that what college football is really all about, in the end, the alumni and fans were so opposed that it was quickly squashed and kept at the Cotton Bowl. The winner of the game gets the Golden Hat, which is a 10-gallon cowboy hat trophy that stays in the athletic department of the winner until the next year. And the governor of the losing team presents the governor of the winning state's team a side of beef to be donated to charity. This is called the governor's trophy, even though it's not a trophy and the governor doesn't really get it. And number one, the Ohio State versus the team up north. Okay, the team up north, or TTUN as they are known to Buckeye fans, is actually Mich... I can't say it. It's a state above Ohio and Indiana that looks like a mitten and has another totally separate park called the Upper Peninsula in Lake. Oh, well, look on a map. This has been named the greatest rivalry in sports, not just in college football. And yes, if you can't tell by now, I am a Buckeye fan. Growing up in Ohio, you are groomed to be a Buckeye from a young age. These two teams have always hated each other, but not until two coaches named Woody Hayes and Bo Schembechler took the reins did it rise to the level we know today. Though they were fast friends off the field, on the field was another story. The game, as it is called, was first played in 1897 with a team up north routing the Buckeyes 34 to nothing. In the early years, the Wolverines, or Skunk Weasels, were a dominant team and won 12 of the first 14 meetings with two ties. The very first Ohio State victory was not until 1919, and from then on, it's been back and forth ever since, with the team up north leading the all-time rivalry 60-51 with six ties. Bo and Woody clashed from 1969 to 1978 in what was dubbed the 10-Year War. It was hotly contested with Bo taking a 5-4 lead with one tie. Woody was fired after the 1978 season for a Clemson player accidentally running into Woody's fist at the Gator Bowl. Woody held an overall 16 wins, 11 losses, and one tie record against his hated rivals over his career in 42-28-5 overall. Bo Schembechler spoke at Woody's funeral in 1987 and then promptly lost to the Buckeyes later in the year at home. Sorry, Bo. Aww. 
The game has been the precursor to a national championship or playoff opportunity several times, including last year when the Skunk Weasels defeated the Mighty Buckeyes. However, due to the pedigree and overall talent of Ohio State, both teams made it into the playoffs, where the team up north was outclassed by TCU and the Buckeyes barely lost to eventual champion Georgia in the waning seconds of the game. Some humorous pop culture about the game include Woody was asked after the game in 1968 by a reporter why he went for two after the Buckeyes 50 to 14 blowout of the team up north. Woody said, because they wouldn't let me go for three. Another story has the team bus low on gas after the game in the state up north and the driver wanting to pull over to fill up. Woody yelled, and I quote, no, goddammit, we do not pull in and fill up. And I'll tell you exactly why we don't. It's because I don't buy one goddamn drop of gas in the state of Michigan. We'll coast and push this goddamn car to the Ohio state line before I give this state a nickel of my money, unquote. And that is the only time you'll ever hear me say, Mich- mm, well, you know. <laughs> <sighs> Lastly, let's talk about 2006 and the game dubbed the game of the century. Ohio state was ranked number one and the Wolverines were ranked number two. The game was moved from its normal noon Eastern time slot to prime time to accommodate the large viewing audience and capitalize on incredible revenue from advertisers. Because isn't that what college football is really about? The move proved lucrative as it amassed an audience of 22 million viewers, making it the most watched regular season game since 1993. The game went back and forth for four quarters with the Buckeyes holding off the skunk weasels late in the game to preserve a 42 to 39 victory. Oddly enough, the Ohio lottery numbers for pick four that night were four, two, three, and nine, matching the score of the game in order and paying out $5,000 per winner for a total of $2.2 million. There was a chance the committee would choose both those teams to play again in the national championship, but the committee chose Florida, who proceeded to blow out the Buckeyes with future Buckeye head coach Urban Meyer coaching the Gators to victory. Not all stories have happy endings. But look for another great game this year with both teams on the path to another undefeated matchup of teams that could be ranked in the top five. And as of this writing, both are in the top three. So keep winning and go Buckeyes. Next are some rivalries in my honorable mention category. Nebraska Cornhuskers and the Oklahoma Sooners. Now this matchup was put on hold after the Huskers joined the Big Ten in 2011 and their program went from a perennial powerhouse to a losing team looking for the right coach pretty quick. But back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, this was as good as it got in college football outside of Ohio. Army versus Navy. Yes, this is one of the best rivalries in college football for a few people. But neither team is a powerhouse and neither really are ever in contention for a national championship. So if you're in the military, thank you for your service. But this game isn't on my radar. Washington versus Washington State. Nicknamed the Apple Cup, this has been going on for 119 years. And though neither team is perennially in the championship hunt until this year, it's a storied rivalry that means the world to the great Northwest. With Washington leaving for the Big Ten next year, I'm hoping they continue this game as both teams have gotten really good over the past few years. California versus Stanford. 
okay, neither team is good outside of the years of John Elway, Andrew Luck, and A.A. Ron Rogers. But the greatest play in college football history happened during this game when the Cal State Golden Bears ran a kickoff all the way back with the assist of five laterals and more than a few non-calls. Cal player Kevin Moen sprinted into the end zone with time expired and ran into Stanford band member Gary Terrell, thus cementing their notoriety for eternity. Great game, but other than that, it's not really a rivalry I want to watch every year, even though they've been at it for 125 years. USC versus Notre Dame. Two hated teams, and ABC loves this game, but they really aren't conference rivals, so I kind of have a hard time with this one. They play for the jeweled Shillelagh Trophy. Um, what? Oregon and Oregon State. Only because they play for the Platypus Trophy, and that has to be the best name for a trophy ever. And lastly, Kansas State and Iowa State. Again, the name is the only reason they are here. This is dubbed Farmageddon. Winner. So we've established that there are dozens of great rivalries that make college football the impassioned sport it is today. Longtime pro football fans in cities like Kansas City, Chicago, Dallas, Green Bay, and Pittsburgh will argue until their cheap beer goes flat that professional football is much more popular than college. All I have to say to that is this. If it were more popular, then why are the largest football stadiums all on the college level? The 15 largest stadiums are all college football stadiums. The largest professional stadium is MetLife Stadium, which houses two pro teams, the New York Giants and the New York Jets. In fact, most professional stadiums hold less than 75,000 people, which would put them 25th on the list of largest college football stadiums. Why do you think that is? The easy answer is because if the front offices for professional football teams thought they could fill a stadium of 80,000 to 100,000 people and generate extra revenue for every home game, then they will be all over that. Big time. But they cannot. But universities can. Because that fan base is much larger and much more devoted whether the team is winning or losing. Even down here in Texas where the Dallas Cowgirls reign supreme, I see more Texas Longhorn shirts than Dallas at a clip of about 3-1. to one. The pure excitement for college sports is unparalleled. Take that, pro football! So let's talk playoffs. The national championship used to be decided by a panel of, quote, experts, unquote, that decided based on an eye test who would make the championship game every year. Sometimes there are only two major college football teams that were undefeated, making the selection fairly simple. But when three or more teams were undefeated, or there were no undefeated teams, but a bevy of very good one and two loss teams, that made selecting the two best teams not only difficult, but downright scary considering the amount of rabid football fans across the country that thought their team should have been included. Every year, there were countless arguments about who was selected and who wasn't that would last right up until the next college football season. However, the 2014 season changed all of that with the implementation of the college football playoffs. Now, a group of 13 hand-picked, quote, experts, unquote, Pick the top four teams to play two semifinal games and one championship game to determine who is the best of the best. But, of course, the very first year 
Both Baylor and TCU were left out with only one loss because they did not participate in a Big 12 championship game. And yes, every year since, the number five and number six schools had good arguments why they should be in the playoffs. So, beginning next year, the field will expand to 12 teams. So now the 13 and 14 teams will be complaining. You really can't please everyone. But I, for one, can't wait for the expanded playoffs, if only to have just a little more college football to watch. Have you ever heard of football widows? No, it's not the wife of a football fan who has prematurely passed. It's a wife of a football fan, period. They're called widows because during the football season, their husbands that agreed to love and cherish till death do they part has slipped into a football coma, leaving his blushing bride to fend for herself during the season. Well, at least on the weekends. My lovely wife is one of these. Luckily, I'm not a major professional football fan, so during the season, I only ask for Saturdays to watch college football until a picture of the gridiron is seared into my brain. Sundays are then for her. That is my compromise to watch college football and remain married. I remember attending my very first college football game when I was 12 years old. The game wasn't just any game. It was the game. Ohio State versus the team up north. The weather was freezing, and I was certain this was going to be the longest day of my life. But by the end of the game, a Buckeye victory, 12-10, to 10, I was not only completely unaware of the cold, but completely hooked as a fan. The next year, we traveled to Ann Arbor for the game in enemy territory. My father worked for a company that was based in the state up north, so his company car had a license plate to match. This was in our favor as we saw the Skunk Weasel fans jumping on cars with Ohio license plate and harassing the drivers. It was here that I learned the hatred these two teams had for each other on game day. The Buckeyes won that game too and would go on to the Rose Bowl with a chance at the national championship. They lost the game to UCLA and ended up ranked number four. But now, not only was I hooked, but now I expected my team to win every year. This is how college football works. They get you hooked. Every year is a clean slate and a chance to win games, beat your rivals, go to a bowl game and win. And if you're really lucky, have a shot at being the best college football team in the nation. In conclusion, my name is Mark and I am addicted to college football. Hi, Mark. I own more Ohio State shirts, sweatshirts, and jerseys than there are days in the month. I have socks, shoes, shorts, underwear, hats, necklaces, blankets, lights, candles, pictures, signs, license plate covers, magnets, flags, grill utensils, cups, clocks, coasters, wallets, keychains, desk mats, and even a computer case that say Ohio State. One of my dogs, Jackson, has both a Buckeye collar and jersey he happily wears during every game as well. My wife won't allow the other two dogs to be indoctrinated into the cult just yet. But according to collections I've seen of other fans, my Buckeye paraphernalia is rather tame in comparison. However we represent our favorite team, the bottom line is clear. We Americans love our college football. We love our teams and players, not because they win every week, but because every single player on the field is playing his heart out every game just because he loves it. Less than one-tenth of one percent of college football players make it to the NFL every year. So the majority are playing because they love football. You just can't find that at the pro level in any sport. Here's to every college football fan listening. Good luck Saturday and keep wearing those team colors. 
Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Irrational Realist. Please subscribe to The Irrational Realist for the latest episode every two weeks. For now, thank you for listening, and remember, podcast spelled backwards is taco if the S, D, and P are silent.